0: Good morning. Good morning. This morning we're going to be in John chapter two. (laughs) Oh, it's great to see all the fellowship. It is. It's great to see everybody. No, I'm out in front. It's great to see everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's how we do it in Kairos. <laughs> this morning, we'll be in John chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and, and turn your Bibles there. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're continuing with the Jesus story. Today, we're going to talk about an interesting one. It's about Jesus' first miracle, turning the water into wine. We're going to answer a couple of questions, hopefully, and, uh, and then kind of talk about the whole interaction between him and his mom, and maybe what was really going on there, and why they said what they said. But if you're there, in John chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 1, where it says that, "...and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage." And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And his mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he says unto you to do, do it. And there were six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews that contained 2 or 3 firkins apiece. And that's 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said unto them, Fill up the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And then he said unto them, Draw out and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they did that. They bear it and they drawed it out for him. And when the ruler of the feast tasted the water, Which was now made wine, And he didn't know from whence it came. But the servants that drew the water, they knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth the good wine. And when men have well drunk, they set forth then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good for the last. This was the beginning of the miracles that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and it manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him man the wine ran out right in the middle of a wedding celebration this has the potential for embarrassment and disaster and social ills for a long time to come as the people would talk about what happened but let's take our thoughts as we always do back into this time back into the time of jesus and let's try to see the customs let's try to see the traditions and the things that were going on and get a real glimpse of what really happened here we want to understand this miracle that jesus did and anytime you come to a passage like this the first thing that people want to know is what exactly kind of wine was it that jesus made I don't know how many times I've been asked that question. What was it? Was it grape juice? Was it real wine? What was it that he made? And I know, and I have listened, and I have talked with those who teach the scriptures, and, and those even in the academic field, that are on both sides of the fence. But the reality of the thing is, is when you go to the original language, the word is oinos. And it's up there on the slide for you. The word oinos means wine. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version at the time of Jesus, the language that most people spoke to communicate was Greek. Alexander the Great had conquered the world and spread this language. And it was kind of a God thing because it's a very precise language. And so when they took the Hebrew scriptures... And converted them at that time into Greek so that the people could also understand it. Oinos was translated into yayin from the Hebrew which was the fermented beverage of wine. So that is what it was. And this word oinos is used elsewhere in the New Testament to back this up. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. And if you're taking notes on your announcement sheet or anything to... Uh, go home and study these later Ephesians 5 and 18 says do not be drunk on wine that's our word oinos which leads to debauchery but instead be filled with the spirit it's also used in 1st Timothy 3 in verse 8 for the qualifications of deacons when it says they are not to be given to much wine so we have here at the wedding celebration In Cana of Galilee, a situation where everything follows in line with their ancient culture and customs of what they would do at such a celebration. So take a deep breath. Let's all just relax as we dig into this subject and we start to look at it. The second question that everybody always wants to ask then is what is the biblical doctrine of drinking then? And so I'm going to touch on that just briefly for a minute. And I first want to say is that it is not bad to take a drink. But drunkenness is always a sin. And that's the main thing. And why is it? Do you think that, that God just doesn't want us to have fun? He's taken all the fun out of life and he wants us to be like that picture of the old American family where they're standing there and it looks like they were... Uh, raised on pickle juice and weaned on the dill pickle no that's not the idea of it he doesn't want to take the fun away but what happens if you have too much of this is why god doesn't want you to have too much of it because it removes from your mind and from your thought process and from who you are the ability to make rational decisions it it opens up your moral checks and balances and we'll see that it actually opens up your mind and the vacuums and the perceptions of your mind actually to be able to be influenced by the dark side and so that is why he does not want you to drink too much because you fall under a wrong influence whenever you do proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1 says That wine is a mocker, and strong drink, or beer in the NIV, is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Proverbs is addressed to the believer, to those who were believers back then in the Hebrew. The Israelites were were given this for their knowledge. So it was written to believers, and they were told that it's a mockery that it makes out of you. And that it also, strong drink, can lead to brawling. It's the word that was used there in the original is raging. That it causes a raging within you. And it explains then that it it takes away that check and balance from your mind and all the restraints that you have in normal social life. Proverbs 23, verse 20 and 21 says, now get this. You're not to even join to those who drink too much or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor. They end up with drowsiness and clothed in rags. And that passage also takes up then eating too much as well. We like to skip over that part because most of us love to eat. I like the new commercial that's on there for Amazon with Alexa, if you've ever seen some of those. And the guy's standing there, and he's got a pile of chicken wings up on his plate. And that's what I like to do. Man, when the Super Bowl comes, I like barbecued chicken wings. And he's got a big pile of them going. And he says, Alexa, how many calories is in a chicken wing? And she goes, there are 310 calories in a chicken wing. And all of a sudden, he starts putting them back in. That's, that's what it is also, though, with, with the other side of this, that with the excess of drinking. um. I'm going to skip on down to Isaiah 28 and verse 7 and 8. This is talking about those who were in the service of God, the priests and the prophets. And it says that they stagger from wine and they reel from their beer. The priests and prophets stagger and they are befuddled with wine. They reel from their beer. And they stagger when they see the prophets see their visions and they stumble, the priests do in rendering their decisions and their judgments. And it says that the tables that they serve before God are covered with vomit and there is not a spot that is without filth. Wow, it reveals a lot about what happens as it continues to grow upon you. Their teaching, the ability to teach correctly, the ability to see properly and to instruct is taken away and blinded because of the effects that fermented beverage has upon it and it vividly illustrates the idea we're going to talk about nadab and abihu in leviticus chapter 10 on what happened there with remember they are the sons of aaron who was the brother of moses and they were part of the priesthood god had laid out all the ground rules on how the you were supposed to worship him what he expects the priests to do he laid out in his word for them and i'm going to read to you leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 through 11 because it's a graphic illustration of what happens to those who were in the service of god it says in verse 1 that Aaron's son Nadab and Abihu took their censers put fire in them and added incense and they offered up a strange or an unauthorized fire before the Lord. It was contrary to his command from his word. So fire came down from heaven from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said this to Aaron, and this is pretty tough. He said, The Lord had spoke to me and said, Among those who approach me, See, the priests, his sons, the priests were the ones who were approaching. We did a study about that altar of incense and how they would go in there right next to the holy of holies. And he said that those who approach me, I will be proved holy by them. In sight of all of the people, I will be proved holy and I will be honored. And Aaron, the father of these two young men, had to remain in silence. Moses summoned two of the cousins of these young men to carry your cousins outside of the camp away from the front of the sanctuary from where they were smitten. And they came and they carried them in their tunics outside the camp as Moses had ordered. And then Moses said to Aaron and to his two remaining sons that were left in the priesthood, Eleazar and Ithamar, he said, Don't take this too harshly. Do not let your hair become unkept. Do not tear your clothes and and rend them off or you will die. Wow. The lords will be angry with the whole community if you do that. But your relatives and all of the Israelites can mourn the lord for those whom he has just destroyed with fire. Do not leave the entrance of the tent, though, you three, Aaron and his two sons, or you will die because of the Lord's anointing is upon you to be there. And they did as Moses said. And I think, hang on a minute. Wow. God was so angry with all of that, and he wanted to be proved holy before him. But but what does this have to do with turning water to wine, you're thinking? Well, it's because... Of what caused them to offer up the strange fire. What caused them to do something that was unauthorized. And they ignored it or could not think properly about it. Because when we continue it says. Then the Lord said to Aaron. So here's the words of the Lord to Aaron. You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink. Whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for all generations to come so that you might distinguish. So here again is that purpose clause. Well, we said why God wants us to refrain from having too much. He said so that you will be able to distinguish. You can think properly and distinguish and decide between what is holy and what is common. That you will be able to know what is clean and and unclean and then you can teach properly the israelites all the decrees that i have given you through moses so there's the reason it's not that he doesn't want you to have fun it's because when it happens you're not going to have fun you're going to make mistakes you're going to make decisions that will affect you for a lifetime and things that are going to make a mockery out of you and a fool And so it's for your protection and because he loves you that he tells you all of this. So it removes all safeguards from our thinking. You're actually susceptible to the demonic influence of the dark side upon you when those reserves are shut off with these things. And that's why he wants us to do that. And that leaves also a lasting example for me on how I'm supposed to be before the Lord as I prepare and I teach the Word of God, that it be done properly. Now, those are Old Testament passages, you say, but what does the New Testament have to say? Well, it does chime in as well on this subject. Romans chapter 13, verses 12 to 14. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension or in jealousy, but rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. The works of darkness here are contrasted with the works of light and it's all centered around this carousing or unbridled partying the the drunkenness and the things that it leads to is sexual immorality and debauchery that word debauchery or lewdness is it sometimes or licentiousness as it sometimes translated i've put that on the board for you the definition that comes straight out of the original language dictionary it says that it's an outrageous conduct that's shocking to public decency. It also leads to violence that the root word aselges means brutal or properly that you do violent spite. It rejects restraint. That's where you, the restraint of your mind and your self-control, it removes those inhibitions from you and it leads to unbridled lust and lawlessness and excess and things so in other words it leads to problems in your life and that's why he doesn't want you to do it not because he doesn't love you and doesn't want you to have fun and there are times when with this is like everything else though we all sin and come short of the glory of god so don't beat yourself up about it we always move forward our god is a from now on God. Every time you see Jesus Christ. With somebody. Whether it's the woman at the well. Or anybody. Whenever he talks to him And addresses you. Then he says. From now on. I want you to do this. So each time you fail. Don't let it keep you down. But let it build you up. That I have a God that loves me. And says from now on. Walk with me in your hand and in your thought first corinthians also tells us the same thing in ephesians 5 and 17 to 18 we also talked about a minute ago when we addressed what type of wine it was when it says not to be drunk on it but to be filled with the spirit so excess is always bad with anything moderation is good and my advice i guess when it comes down to everything is you have to know yourself you have to know yourself if you can have a little bit that can restrain yourself from having anything that ruins your thought process that inhibits your self-control then don't do it but if but if you can manage that in a proper way all the time then it's okay it really is jesus now he's going to face this social issue as he goes to cana of galilee there's been left an invitation for him to come to a celebration. And the Bible always has to be interpreted in the time when it was written. And in the first century A.D. they had a common practice and custom that has came about ever since the book of Genesis. So let's establish that real quick before we get into our text too in John chapter 2. Marriage involves the three C's of what goes on. The three C's, it it starts in Genesis 2 when God as a divine institution makes marriage and in that divine institution god took one man and one woman and brought them together and that's the proper thing for marriage it's not anything else any other combination of man man woman woman etc so this is the proper marriage it is a divine institution by god and it is not something that's just for the church It's not something just for that. It's for the entire population. This is one of God's divine things that goes across the entire board of people. And starting in Genesis 29 with Jacob, we see the three C's of marriage involved here as he goes. There's the contract, the consummation, and then the celebration that happens. Those sequence events in in chapter 29, if you remember, Jacob went to work for Laban, and he fell in love with Rachel. And he says, I want your daughter. And they worked out a contract. For seven years, you will work for her. And after the seven years, I will grant her to be your wife. And so he did that. And he came to him at the end of the contract time and says, I fulfilled the contract part. Now I want to have my wife. So they set up the tent, and they said, That night we will bring her to you. And during that evening, the consummation took place. But you remember what happened. Woke up the next morning, they came out, and it was Leah instead of Rachel. He had snuck the eldest daughter in on him. And if you'll remember, Jacob was a swindler. His, wor- his name means the swindler. What did he do with Esau? Took his birthright, remember? He swindled him. He got a taste of his own medicine by Laban, because Laban did the same thing to him. And when they came out, he was like, this is not Rachel. So what did he have to do? The marriage had been consummated. It was now legal and binding. And so he had to make another contract for Rachel. Had to work another seven years to get them. And he said, but you're not going to take away from my eldest daughter's celebration of the marriage that you just uh, consummated. So they went for a week in celebration of that marriage before he began to work on the next one with Rachel. So those three C's is what's going on. And when we find Jesus in Cana of Galilee, we are at the celebration part. The first two C's is already passed, and this is the celebration. And that's where we start our story in John chapter 2 of the water to wine. And here we find that there was a marriage jesus arrives in cana but he arrives late he has six followers at this time he has we saw four of them last week when he called his disciples he's got andrew peter james john and right after that he got philip and nathaniel so at this point he has six disciples with him and it says that they arrive at the celebration with it already in progress mary was already there And I'm going to bring this out because it's very important that the construct there of that in the original language was, she has been there from the beginning. It was an imperfect tense. She was there at the start and helped set everything up. They arrived late. It's in an, an aorist tense that shows that it was a past point of time that was later on. And so... That's important to know that now the crisis occurs. The celebration had already been going on by the time that Jesus and the six arrived. And I'm in verse 2 and 3, but I'm back in the King James. I know I'm, I'm trying to get into that NIV. And a lot of these passages I read this morning, I read from the NIV. But it doesn't show exactly the idea like the King James does, the proper wording for what happened next. It says that Jesus... And the disciples wanted wine. And she told them that they have no wine. And that's what it actually says here. That they came in and they wanted that. Now, I don't think for a moment it was an accident that Jesus arrived just as the wine ran out. There is no accidents with God. So there was a purpose here. This is going to be his calling card. His entry into the ministry we have seen where he was baptized that he went and faced temptation he started selecting his disciples and now he's starting the public ministry and this is like handing your business card for the first time to a customer if you're a salesman here is his card and he comes in they want it they've arrived late and his mom says the wine has ran out and I'm going to present to you what I believe transpires throughout all this and why the conversations. Because if you look at the conversations and just read it, it it logically doesn't make sense because, you know, they wanted wine. She says, we're out of wine. He says, what's that to do with me and you? My hour has not yet come. Why did that pop in? And then she just turns around and says, whatever he says, do it. Have you ever thought how that actually all played out? let's take a look at it see if we can find out okay Um, why did they want wine I think for a couple reasons first off is those three c's we're into the celebration part of it Um, what happened then happens today it's carried over in our culture the same as it was in their culture what was happening is is that whenever they're married and you're ready to celebrate what do you do You toast the bride and groom. Even in our weddings today, after the ceremony is over, you go to a reception area where you wait, and when the bride and groom comes, we toast the bride and groom, right? It still carries over today. That's what happened. But in their culture, it didn't just last for a couple of hours that night. It could last for a week or more depending upon how... Wealthy and well off the family was, and how much friends and how much they wanted to celebrate. It might go for a week or more. So they were always people coming and going. And as they came, they wanted to toast the bride and the groom. And that's what is happening here. They arrive and they want to toast the bride and the groom on the normal custom. Second thing could be that these are a bunch of rough guys, they are fishermen. And if you look at what's transpired from chapter one into chapter two, he's chosen them. They've had to walk for a couple of days to get back to Cana of Galilee from where he was at. And so they're probably a little hot, a little tired, just arrived into town. And it's also going to wet their whistle a little bit as well. Uh, We want something to drink. You know, we've walked for three days. We're ready. We want to toast them. And we're also ready to have something. The word that's used in here, though, when it talks about them arriving is o o'o. And what it means is, is that you've arrived late after the fact and everything is gone. That's the word that's used here. And that's why it's, it's very interesting on the construct of the language. So they have been left out because the wine has ran out. And so now Mary, the mother of Jesus, says unto them, we have no wine. And we can infer from the rest of the passage that what she is actually trying to say to them is, Hey, guys, son, take you and your friends and quietly slip on out. We don't want to embarrass the folks. They have ran out, and we don't need to make a scene and let everybody know that we've ran out. Can you guys just leave? And you think, well, why do you say that? Because... Look at the conversation for a minute. The first thing Jesus pops back with is, you want me to leave? Well, my hour's not yet come. So that's the insinuation of this is when she tells him that we have no wine. Jesus has to get her to stop thinking from a physical sense into a spiritual realm now because this is going to be a spiritual solution to this problem. And he says, woman. He doesn't say mom or mother. He says, woman. The word is gune in the original language it means where we get our word gynecologist so he says woman that is like when i used to be a teenager and i'm rambling about something and my mom was trying to tell me something important but i'm not listening i keep rambling and she would just go daryl thomas now you know when they use the middle name what do you do you snap to attention don't you You stop talking, you stop doing what you're doing, and and you start focusing on what she's got to say. And that's what Jesus did here. He's not mom, mother, it's woman. And when he says this, and it's in the vocative form, which is pretty, pretty direct, it snaps her attention. All of a sudden now, she's paying attention to what her son is going to say unto her. And he says, woman, what is that? to you and what is that to me in other words what's this all got to do with anything really you know happiness my way of life does not revolve around the celebration what's what what are you talking about here and he knows exactly what she's insinuating she's telling him we have no wine now his second response was my hour is not yet come And in the book of John, this is the first time he introduces it, but he's going to use it in about five or six other places. He uses it in John 7, John 8, John 12, 16, and 17. And every time he uses this phrase, it's because of the cross. He's talking about dying upon the cross and leaving this life. And so it's like, wow, where does that pop in right here? That's three years away. It's because he wants her to focus. You know what she forgot? She knew all about Jesus. That's her son. She's been with him for 30 years. But at the moment, she got caught up in the cares, the hustle and bustle of what is going on, and she forgot that he is also God. She knew him as her son, but she had for the moment forgot that he was the son. She's about like Martha was. You remember Martha in John chapter 10. She was cumbered about with this load of care. And Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, her sister. And she comes and said, tell her to get up and help. And Jesus slightly rebukes her and says, Martha, Martha, you're cumbered about with all these cares. But what she is doing is what's really important. I'm only going to be here for a short time. And that's where his mother Mary is at in this time. She's cumbered about with the affairs of this wedding, bless her heart. And I'm also starting to think that Mary, by the inference of all of these scriptures, is probably the the grand dame or the person in charge of the supplies. Because if you look in a minute, she's just going to turn around and say to the servants that are there that's supposed to take care of taking the napkins, taking the forks, the little mints and all of the stuff, she's going to turn around to the servants and says whatever he tells you to do do it how did she have that kind of clout he's going to fill up a water pot and tell him to take a ladle out of it and give it to the governor of the feast to solve the problem if you're the paid servant are you going to risk that type of thing just because some woman told you to do that no no You would do it though if she's the boss and gave you the direct instruction and then now you have to do what she said to do. And that's what I infer from looking at this passage because otherwise if I was there, I'd no, I'm not going to give them the governor of the feast water to drink. So she, that's why she's so excited and cumbered about with this is because it's her responsibility to try to make sure everything is working properly. So she's going to say to them in verse 5, whatever he says to you to do, and that's in a command form, it's in an imperative. So she had the power and the ability to say what he says, that's what you need to do. So, whatever he says, do it. And the application, before we move on in the rest of the story, for you and I, Mary's only human she's only human she's like us and she got wrapped up in a moment scurrying about with all the cumbersome and the care not wanting to embarrass the host and she got carried away with this she's thinking in a physical sense and that's why he has to say woman and snap her out of that and bring her back to logical form the question she was trying to handle it herself without relying upon her son the deity when you are scurrying about in life and when you have problems and troubles and you are cumbered about with these cares do you try to handle them yourself or do you turn it over to the son of god that's the part that i get out of here she had to remember and learn to turn it over to the son of god who could who could handle the the problem that caused her to snap out of it to focus and to get ready for it. And so Jesus then uses the analogy of her saying leave the wedding feast. To him replying back my hour not yet come. To remind her that you might be the mother of my humanity. But I am still your God. I'm still the son of God. And although Jesus was her son in humanity. He is still the God of Mary. And I think Jesus smiled right now. I think Jesus really smiled when all of a sudden he saw the light click on in his mom. You remember she had heard the shepherds come and explain that this is a special one. We've seen the sign and the stars. They saw the magi come and anoint him the king. And it's always said in the temple when they dedicated him, and every time it talks about how she kept these things in her heart. She had stored up enough doctrine from the word from God. So that now when he reminds her of who he is. He sees the, the light bulb come on. And she spins around and she just tells him now. Whatever he says, do it. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what he has in mind. But my son has never made a bad decision to this point. He has never let me down. And I cannot wait to see what he does in this situation. Whatever he says to you, do it. Because you remember what he said when he was 12. I must be about my father's business when they came to look at him. And he's just reminded her of that here. Psalm: She did what Psalm 55 and verse 22 says. Cast your burden upon the Lord. And he will sustain you, and he will never suffer the righteous to be moved. That word for there on casting a burden, the burden's a military term for the pack that you would wear and hump around all those times. Casting it down is a WWE term for a body slam. So it's saying that the weight that is bearing on you and, and holding you, take it and body slam that onto the lord and he is going to pick that burden up and carry it for you so that you don't have to and that's exactly what his mom does when she turns around and says whatever he says to you to do now do it she has given him the burden and the pack and he is now going to carry it for her okay slide eight um i'm skipping that's why i'm i'm telling tanya to go ahead uh next jesus saw the six stone water pots setting there after the manner of the purification of the jews and they each hold 20 to 30 gallons and he spoke to the servants and they filled them up it said to the brim don't you love it when the holy spirit gets really specific you know sometimes it's kind of vague and you're wondering what really happened but here it's real specific it was up to the brim up to the top why nothing else could have coming in and anyone could say that jesus didn't turn the water to wine somebody poured some extra stuff in there somebody added something no it was up to the brim so that nothing else could have been added to it and then jesus says the craziest thing he says take and dip of that water that you just poured in there and give it to the governor of the feast and i can just imagine what the servants are thinking i'm going to give that to him and he's expecting wine And when he tastes this old river water, he's going to spit it out. (laughs) And it's going to be funny. And I'm not in trouble because he told me to do it. And I'm going to wait and see what happens. But it says that that didn't happen. I wondered what they thought, but it didn't happen. No, not a chance. The governor took that ladle and he took a drink. And he says, where's the groom? And I bet they're thinking, Uh uh-oh they're in trouble he's going to chew them out for bringing water that's not what happens at all the groom comes up and he says hey buddy you made a mistake here you put out the best wine at the last you were supposed to have put this out at the first wow what a change of events and it says that the governor had no idea where the water or the wine or anything had came from only the servants knew and they knew what had happened and what a great miracle this is because that's 120 to 180 gallons of water i can take a big horse tank and fill it up and i can say hocus pocus and abracadabra and i can do all kinds of stuff and i can never make 120 gallons of water into wine it's just not going to happen like that like he did it was a great miracle it was a calling card it was his business card to say here i am the Messiah has just arrived. The Son of God is here. I just did something that nobody can do. And that's my business card. And now everybody started talking about it. You wonder why miracles happen. As in John 20 as they're closing out the book and stuff. John says that these things are written. So that you might believe. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that in believing on him. That you might have faith and hope and everlasting life so that's why this was written and that's why this business card was there now do you remember how many pots were filled up six remember in the beginning we said how many disciples that he had at this time six isn't it funny how several times in the miracles the number of disciples represents the number of things like the feeding of the 5,000 Took up 12 baskets full so that each one carried a basket down to remind them that Jesus did this miracle. Here we have six water pots and we have six disciples. And what it is is those pots were there for a purpose. They were there for the ceremonial cleansing of things. To wash vessels, to wash people's hands before they eat, etc. But those pots were empty weren't, weren't they? They had to be filled up. Jesus looked in the pots and he saw the connection between his disciples and the pots. There's a purpose for each one of us, for every person that God has created. But those pots were sitting there empty and useless and cold and not serving their purpose. Just like these disciples were when he called them. He has just called them and right now they're empty. They're not filled up yet. But water is an analogy for the word of God. And for salvation, the water of the word. So as they travel and they walk with Jesus for the next three years, just like those water pots, they're going to get filled up with his word and with his example. And they're going to get filled up to the brim so that on Acts chapter 2, they are ready now for that to be spilled out and overflowing. And wine is used in the word as a blessing from God, whenever you're going to go into like a land of milk and honey, and it also tells you that it's fruitful with the wine. It's the land of blessing, and so wine represents blessing. So you're going to put the Word of God inside your water pot, and when you get filled up with it, then you can draw those blessings out of you into others to be able to share that with them. And that's the example that it is and it says in verse 11 that because of this calling card this miracle that jesus did that the disciples believed on him that is why it happened and god knew two thousand years ago today that we'd be studying this same thing here today and learning about this and about his son so that we might have the water of life that we might fill our vessels up change each one of us from an empty pot into a full pot that is full of blessings not only for yourself but for others and that you can perform and do what he has wanted you and prepared you to do so as the band heads on up let's briefly just recap kind of what we saw today in this miracle miracle is the business card of the lord you know that is why we can believe because of the things that was done and it wasn't disputed. All of those things happened, and for 2,000 years they have not been disputed, cannot be proved to be untrue. I learned that Mary is, was a human being just like me. She's not some deity to be worshipped. She got caught up in the cares and the problems of this world just like you and I do. And sometimes just as the Lord did her, I have to be snapped to it a little bit. To focus back on where my blessings come from. And who can handle my problems when I can't. She got distracted. Problems from a human viewpoint sometimes can't be fulfilled. They're hopeless. She knew Jesus but forgot that he was God. That's when he's told her my hour has not yet come. What about the water pots? They had a purpose. They had a plan that they were supposed to do. But they weren't doing that. But afterwards Jesus did. And he used them for a great purpose. That's you and I. Just like the disciples did. That's you and I. I challenge us as a body of Christ here in this place. To be filled with that water of the word. To be filled so that we can become blessings and full. Not only for ourselves but for everyone that we come in contact with. And then continue to prepare our life For that third C, the celebration. Because if you remember also, the church is said to be the bride of Christ. And he's coming back one day for the bride. And there's going to be a celebration feast. And that's what I'm looking forward to. I want to be there on that celebration feast and to be ready, don't you? Yeah, so we keep our lives prepared and to fill up our pots. So that we're ready when that day comes. He left his calling card for all of humanity. In this first miracle in Cana of Galilee. Let's pray. Father thank you for sharing with us your thoughts. For your word is your mind. And you wanted us to see this great and joyful lesson on the first miracle that your son did. We pray that the things that we have studied father will challenge us that they will help us out in our walk of life and that we may become filled water pots, Father, to be in great service to you so that you and your body is exalted in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.